ladies and gentlemen, transmitting direct from Lion's Den Studios in Los Angeles, California, Crew Studios and Danube Productions bring you The Conduit, bringing together motivated artists to share their experience and to pull back the curtain for a first-hand look at a life in the arts. Today's episode, our guest is music producer and president of music for Warner Brothers Pictures, Paul Brusek. So adjust your antenna, relax, and tune in. Your program is about to begin. All right, welcome everyone to episode 14 of The Conduit, a podcast where I sit down and talk to amazing, courageous people about making a living in the arts. Today, my guest is music producer and executive Paul Brusek. Paul began his film career as an assistant engineer on the mix of Apocalypse Now. In the 1980s, he went on to join the music engineering staff at the legendary record plant. By the end of the decade, Brusek moved to music supervision, overseeing a mix of feature films and television projects. He joined the New Line Cinema Music Department in 1996 and was named president in 2001. During Brusek's tenure at New Line, he oversaw music for projects as diverse as Austin Powers, the Rush Hour series, American History X, Wedding Crashers, Hairspray, Sex and the City, and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Brusek was named president of music at Warner Brothers in 2009. On top of his administrative duties, he continues to serve as the creative music executive on a full slate of films annually, including The Hobbit trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises, Wonder Woman, Joker, and Elvis. If our hour today leaves you wanting more, Paul is also a guest lecturer at prestigious institutions like Berklee School of Music, Columbia College, Chicago, and USC. But for now, sit back, relax, and have a listen to my conversation with Paul Brusek. Paul Brusek, welcome to The Conduit. We're so happy to have you, man. Thanks for taking the time to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, I'm just so excited for our listeners to hear your story. I've been researching you for the last few days, and you've just been involved in so many amazing things. So I'm excited to share it all with our listeners. So these days, you're the president of music at Warner Brothers. And for those who don't know this world, what does the president of music at Warner Brothers do every day? What are his job requirements, responsibilities? What are you in charge of? Break it down for us. Well, that, that's that's a funny question. That's the kind of question that your your family asks you at <laughs> all dinners. You know, like yeah. yeah, I know you're president of music at Warner Brothers Pictures, but <laughs> what what do you what do you do? Right. You know? <laughs> and there was one Thanksgiving some years ago that. You know, I want, just want to take a break from work. And I was feeling slightly flippant. And I said, I manage expectations, yours, mine, and everybody else's. That's my job. Mm. Uh, and then I, you know, then I, I felt badly for a second, like, oh, that was kind of snarky, Paul. You shouldn't, you know. And then I thought, no, there's some real truth in what I just said. It's funny how things, you know, truth comes out in the most interesting times <laughs> and in interesting ways. Yeah. Um, and it is true, uh, you know, in a global sort of sense. Um, there's a lot of expectations when you're entering a, a I work on the feature film side yeah. for Warner Brothers Pictures, DC, Warner Animation Group, WAG, and, and New Line. Yeah. And um, we're involved, the music team is involved in everything. So once we even consider looking at, you know, making a film, we get a script, we do a breakdown. If there's, if it's a musical, people are singing on camera, if they're dancing on camera, anything that would involve music, we're going to capture that. We're going to end that breakdown. Yeah. And if there's people singing along to the radio specifically, or you're in environments in modern uh, day that would have music in the background, a bar, um, you know, a, a, a cocktail lounge or what have you, you know, we just sort of board it out and go, all right, this is what it looks like. We can kind of tell with some kind of consistency, whether it's an orchestral score, it's big or it's more modernistic, it's smaller, it's ensemble. We take our best shot. We may not even have a director or a producer or anybody attached. We just have a project that we want to try and make a go movie. Yeah. And we'll look at dozens of things, be, you know, and make one of them. Right. Um, I Someone told me, uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if this is accurate, but let's say we have over a thousand projects in development. Yeah. Uh, some level, you know, somebody can go, hey, what was that thing that we were developing back in 2014 and pull it off the shelf and go, I think I got a fit now with a director and a cast and that sort of thing. Ah, gotcha. So 
we get involved early. We may never make those films, but once we do, if it's a heavy musical on camera, say it's Star is Born or it's Elvis, we're actively involved in pre-production, vocal coaches, choreographers, um, you know, any, anything to prep our cast and we do enough of a pre-record in order to be able to shoot the sequence. Got it. Generally, we don't finish the whole thing, um, but we get enough of a you know of an architectural structure, a framework, in order to go and be able to shoot it. You know, so it'd have to be if someone was singing, it would you'd have to you know obviously pick what the song was, whether it was an existing song and you had to license it for that use, or it was something that knew, knew that needed to be created. We would pick a key and a tempo and a bare bones arrangement and have record that. So we could take that on the set and play it back. Right. Um, for instance, on uh, star is born uh, lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper wanted the option to be able to do live vocals, but we pre-recorded the vocals so that you, you want to have something to shoot to. You don't want to get out there with a full crew on a day and go, yeah. And someone lost their voice right? <laughs> or what, what have you. So, yeah. um, if there's not a, an on-camera component to it, we sort of set the thing up. We agree to a budget. We have a director. We know, you know, Tim Burton's going to work with Danny Elfman, uh, or such and such directors always works with a, a certain composer. Right. Or we have a discussion like, "Who are you thinking about?" You know. So we budget for that. Once it's greenlit, we have a locked budget on music and everything else. They'll go off and shoot if it's not a musical on camera sort of situation. And we don't get involved really um, in a meaningful way until we get to post-production, till the film wraps. I see. Um, then the director per uh, guild, director's guild uh, um, requirements has a, uh, a 10 week director's cut window where they get to, okay, now they finish filming and they go off and they sort of put it together. The editor puts together an assembly the first two weeks and then the director gets eight weeks to, to do their cut and then shows it to the, to the studio. Okay. A lot of times the studio, the director's showing it to the studio a little bit early, you know, what to get feedback from not the whole studio, but you know, the creative execs that attach to the film. Yeah. And then we go to work, you know, with the composer, um, with a music editor, we start to spot the film, meaning we go through and, you know, beginning of the film, okay, music starts here, it goes there. Yeah. That's called, we spot it. Um, Got it. And where music is, and where it starts, where it ends, what it needs to do. There's a whole, you know, music notes, spotting notes. So we have a, we have a roadmap at that point. And um, then it's a matter of we go through a preview process where we test uh, the film in various stages two or three times in the post-production process just to see you know, once we get it to a place where, okay, let's hang it in front of an audience. Let's see if there's confusions. Let's see what they gravitate towards, what they're liking, what they're, what they're not liking, what they're bumping up against, you know, like it helps the director and the filmmakers in the studio kind of shape the thing like a sculptor, you know? That makes sense. And um, we tend to temp our films uh, one of two ways. For the most part, it's either with pre-existing score and a good music editor who's good at temping will take, you know, not more than two or three scores from, could be different composers, but similar size orchestra, similar kind of writing, similar orchestration, and put a temp dub together so that we can show the film with some music in it. Yeah. Uh, In recent years, there's been a trend, especially with composers that have worked with their director before, for them to do a, what would I call a suite of music, hmm. you know, a thematic stuff and different sizes and shapes in mock-up form, not in, not going out and recording orchestra, but the, the orchestras, the sample orchestras now are, are phenomenal. Right, right, right. All done, you know, MIDI, so, just temp scores for the time being until you get the budget for the full score. Yeah. And sure. um, so we, 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 certain composers, proactively providing a suite to the cutting room so that they don't really, they, they want, they don't really want to be working against a temp dub yeah. where we get into the situation where a director falls in love with a particular piece of music. That's not ours uh. in a particular scene and then can never like lives it for too long and goes, 
can you get close to it? And we go, no, you can't do that. You know, you, we don't have cop want copyright infringements. Right. So it can get a little tricky. So the workaround for some composers is to provide with music that they're writing for this film. And even in, you know, even in early sketch form right. so that it can be laid out and see how it's working. Yes. And uh, the music editor, along with the picture editor and the director can start to use only the composer's music, not pre-existing. I see. Um, and that seems to be a, a really good way forward. Not everybody does it. Not everybody takes the time to do it. Not everybody is capable of doing it, but the ones that do it, I think can be ahead of the game and, and never have to deal with that temp love situation. Amazing. Amazing. We, uh, we, we booked the studios, the scoring stages, the studios, we um, budget, book the orchestra, work together towards a scoring date, which is usually towards the end of the process, a couple, two, three weeks before we get to final dub. Yeah. Where we bring everything together in, in final form, dialogue, effects, music, and mix it all into the final version of the film. And we'll do a playback at the end for the studio and the filmmakers uh, with a few mix fixed days tacked on the end. And we'll all sit in the room and have some notes about losing dialogue or music, or sometimes you'll, you, in, you know, in individual sequences, music will work really well, but when you hang it all together, you'll start to feel like there's a little too much music too close together. Right. So we could drop that cue and dr let's dry it up there. Right. It, it will make it make that next cue, which is more important, have some, some room to breathe and come in and be more important as opposed to music, music. Right, right, right. I understand. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, we have uh, soundtracks, score soundtracks for almost all of our films. We have an in-house label called Water Tower Music okay. that captures uh, most, if not all, of our score albums. Hmm. And then we do joint ventures with uh, major labels for uh, commercial soundtracks of new music, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, RCA, Sony with, uh, um, with Elvis, Interscope, with Lady Gaga's label, with The Stars Born. Meaning when so you're licensing out, you know, music, pre-recorded music already, you put it on a score. Yeah, we're creating new music, you know. As well. It's, yeah, creating new music, new tracks, new, you know, yeah. the, more of what you would consider in, in, in a 1990s, 2000 way, you know, a soundtrack album with right. new cuts. Right, 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 right. Major artists with singles out in front of the film and videos and yeah. all towards promoting the film, promoting the soundtrack. Sure. Right. That makes sense. Um, well, I appreciate the breakdown. It's very insightful for all of our listeners and for me as well. And uh, it seems like music and, you know, where it belongs and where it goes in a film is really just, you know, um, a long process. You're watching it. You're trying stuff out, putting cues in, taking cues out, figuring, uh, you know, just how it flows the best. And sometimes you don't find out until the last last screening or the last moment. What, is that true? Yeah, it's to come back to my flippant remark about it and manage expectations. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to recognize, and as I did when I got into this business, was that it is an ego-driven business because you think about it, whether it's a, a song that hasn't been written yeah. or a script that hasn't been written or a movie that hasn't been made, it's an idea in somebody's head sure. or some people's head. Right. And it comes to fruition and it gets, you know, it gets birthed in the creation process and then in the production process. And, and um, it's driven by ideas and ideas are, you know, our, our ego. I happen to think that, I happen to know that an ego is an important thing. It's like a spine for a character. If you don't have an ego, you don't, you know, you're not going to stand up. Right. Uh, you know, it's not inherently a bad or good thing. It is a necessary thing. That's absolutely. how you use it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, managing expectations comes down to, it's interesting, you can have, think you're talking about the same thing. And I've had this come up where, let's say you and a director are talking about blue, but you don't get down to the details that the director's thinking about midnight blue and you're thinking about royal blue. Right. Or turquoise, you know, there's lots of shades of blue. True. And what it's important to get in that discussion. So drilling down to understanding what people are expecting. Right. What the, you know, 
So there's no, there's, there can always be some surprises, but you want to, you know, minimize the surprises. Yeah. Communication is a huge, huge part of it. Really big. It's really big. I mean, we jokingly say that, you know, and I don't think anybody in my, I'm pretty sure, and nobody on my team is a trained therapist, but there is a part of, you know, of human psychology that, you know, again, it's a, uh, it's a brave endeavor to, especially for the directors and the filmmakers, to put themselves out there. And if it works, they're heroes. And if it doesn't, they're goats. Right, right. You know, um, yeah. and a lot of pressure. You know, people assign success to the director or they assign failure to the director. Right. Whether that's fair or not, but that's the job, you know. So yeah. I'm mindful of that and I have um, – forge some really good working and personal uh, friendships with directors. And, and I understand enough of what they do. I'm not a director. I'm not directing anything. Um, so I really try to cultivate a relationship where they feel support. Yeah. And heard. feel heard, yeah. feel heard and supported. Right. Right. Yeah. That would seem to be the main thing ways not communicating can waste a lot of time and a lot of money. So you want to, Make sure you're all on the same page getting it done. Well, you talked about your team, and it's interesting to me what your what your team looks like there. And can you talk about like delegation and how, you know, I mean, it's a lot of things you're taking on at one time and multiple things at one time. What does your team look like there at Warner Brothers? Well, our, so our team consists of, on, on the strictly on the film side, consists of, um, including myself, four creative executives. So you could call us executive music producers. You could call us music executive music supervisors. You could call you know we're assigned a group of films. You know, uh, Darren Higman, uh, longtime member of the, even predates me at Warner Brothers Music. Fantastic. Um, she's got great relationships with a lot of her filmmakers, like George Miller from Happy Feet to Fury Road, and. Darren's, you know, and Baz Luhrmann, get great guests, me and Elvis. And those are, those are Darren's projects along with other things. And he has those really, you know, see, so you, you lean into the relationships that people have because right. uh, that it's a shorthand and it's a trust and all that kind of stuff. Sure. You want to build off successes and the trust that existed before on a previous project. Um, I have Nikki Sherrod, uh, who also predates me, um, at Warner brothers and, um, I've got Karen Elliott in the UK. We do a lot of productions in the UK. We have a studio there, Leaveson Studio outside London. And um, we score UK productions. Um, mostly we score them at Abbey Road or Air Studios in, in London. Yeah. And on the New Line side, um, we have Erin Scully, who's our creative exec. Um, and she and her coordinator look after everything that's uh, in, in New Line area. Yeah. Would have segregate that out as its own little brand, right? I see. Um, and and myself, I mean, some projects I, I'm I'm on every project, but some projects I'm more active than others. Yeah. Um, I'm very active right now on Barbie. Okay. Uh, which we're finishing, which comes out in July. Oh, congrats! Very excited about it. Really great soundtrack coming together. Partnership with Atlantic Records. Okay. Um, and um. I'm also very involved with Wonka, which oh, is a prequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory oh, with Timothy wow. Chalamet. Wow. Really charming film will come out at Christmas time. Okay. Uh, we just had a wonderful test screening on Sunday and you know, I'm I'm really excited for the, the world to, to see Wonka. Ooh, it's I am, it, I'm excited already. It's a good film about for it. <laughs> it's a good film for for the right time. It's it, it it's not a Christmas movie, but it's a Christmas movie. If you, you know, it, it's a feel good movie. Oh. There's a, you know, oh, I can't and wait. some really good original music along with some chestnuts from the original oh. Charlie and chocolate factory. So, right. Something for everybody. So, and so I get involved in projects cause I really like to do that. I'm, you know, my favorite space in the world is to be in a recording studio. Yeah. Um, especially when, there are multiple when there are musicians playing off of each other, you're getting a performance, yeah. whether it be with an ensemble or an orchestra. Um, it just, it, I never get tired of it. Yeah. I just, you know, and I discovered that the first time I walked into a recording studio as a teenager with my band and 
made a horrible single, but, you know, <laughs> but I had the experience of working in the studio and I went, I like this. I get this, you know, like. We've and, all made horrible singles. You got to start. Yeah, that's <laughs> you got to right. do it. <laughs> Luckily, I lost mine. So I can't, no one, will, I don't think anyone will ever hear it. I'm going to find it, Paul. I'm going to do it. Good 45. luck. If you, if you do, let me know. I don't even remember the title, but it's, uh, uh, I didn't write it. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> It was a lead. It was a lead singer. I blame him. Okay, <laughs> duly noted. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, I think one of the things that that I'm feel it, it it you know is unique to our group in some in some regards is that everybody on the team on the creative side has either been a music supervisor or worked for a music supervisor. Mm -hmm independently outside outside the studio system got it and so we're possibly more hands-on just the way we're our dna just the way, you know the, and we know how to function and so when we need to bring on a music supervisor for a particular project that's you know like a star is born or like in the heights yeah or like you know wonka um, we work in conjunction with them. We, it's like an edge where, you know, for specifically for a project, we're adding to our team. Right. But we're not, that doesn't mean we just go, okay, over to you, you, you take care of it. I mean, it's just, we're adding to our team. Sure. We're staffing up for a particular project. And now we're building out the team for that project. Adding more uh, people that have that shorthand and trust. Yeah. yeah. And we, uh, we, we have a, uh, a diverse background and tastes and you know i've discovered over the time over the time that i've managed different groupings of people that you know you don't want a group of people that are all the same right that, that's boring you want people to have different interests and different ways into the same issue mm. um but what what makes a team work and this is true of my team our team uh is um we share a common value system personally and professionally in terms of uh, excellence, um, integrity, honesty, work ethic, um, you know, going the extra mile type of, you know, I, I've said to my group, not recently, but previously, we've had some movies that, you know, aren't that good you know like they're, they're not you know they're struggling to find themselves and yeah. i said look we don't decide you know music department doesn't ask what movies we should make right we're told what movies we're going to make but you know they're all our children and we show up with the best music we can and and um yeah there but there is a little th bit of you know you don't want to show up with an incredible score that upstages the film you know, that you don't want to be too good if it, so you have to be sensitive to the fact that let's make the best music we can for every film yeah. and be mindful of what each film can take. Yeah. So you, you don't, you know, lose the balance of what the music role is in a particular film. That's interesting that you bring that up, talking about how some music has just such a um, particular personality or strong personality. I feel like I'm interested to get your input on this because. The, the soundtracks that I really know are 60s soundtracks, Lalo Schifrin and, you know, uh, all the great guys from back then, Ennio Morricone, these guys who had these really strong thematic themes that's like the soundtrack was almost as much a centerpiece as the picture was, you know? And there's still people who do it, but I'm wondering where you find that balance, when it makes sense, when it doesn't make sense. Well, I... The one the scores that you, you talk about, they are a character unto themselves. Right. It's a certain kind of writing where yeah. you know a composer comes in, and all right, I'm I'm going to be another character, right. almost like you know, you know, uh, in Greek tragedy, you know, like the, the the actor standing off to the side and making commentary on you know on what's happening on stage. Yeah, um, and it, it that works with still works with certain filmmakers and certain kinds of films yeah. i think comes to mind you know the uh the cohen brothers yes. yes would be you know something somebody that i would point to um Maybe in Danny terms Elfman of their, their music yeah. yeah elfman um chris nolan mm. uh 
the stuff that he's done with Hans Absolutely. Zimmer and now with Ludwig Göransson. Yeah. Um, having worked with him on five or six films now, yeah. uh, I know his his method and, and how he approaches music and what he expects from it. And he really digs deep. And it's it's not so much a character off to the side of the stage. It's a it's a it's a character growing up from underneath. Yeah. It's really um, it's really powerful. Um, so I think filmmakers are using music sometimes I wouldn't call it subtle, but they're using it in a different way. If you imagine, you know, a stereo field or a, you know, a five one seven one field or even a Dolby atmosphere, you know, there's where does stuff go, you know? Yeah. Where does stuff go? And there's a role that a score has in a film. Sometimes they work from underneath and they're subliminal. Yeah. And sometimes they work from on top and they're just at you. Yeah. And sometimes they're really simple and um I think of, you know, eyes wide shut. Mm. Uh, the the piano dang, 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 so dang. Amazing. Dawson Pook, you know. Yeah. Uh, this is the guy Kubrick. I'm a big Kubrick fan. Yeah, same. Um so I don't want to get too much on a tangent, but <laughs> yeah. you know, but going back to two thousand one, he had Alex North do a score that was thrown out, a proper score, mm. and decided to do what he did with, you know, classical music. Right. And was asked later, you know, in some context, why? And he said, well, why we, Why do you need a film composer? We got all this great music that's already been created. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what he did for the rest of his career, yeah. with a few exceptions. And Alex uh, North that, is no uh, sh nothing short of a genius himself. So. No, and that score has been available for a while yeah. now, and people have heard it, and, yeah. you know, it would be a different movie, though. I Totally. I think the you know, just to stay on the, on the Kubrick tip for a second, yeah. um, as a kid, I think that that made a big impression on me, you know, how he used music, particularly in 2001, yeah. which was when I really became aware of, you know, of him and as a filmmaker. And it was at the time when people were starting to pay attention to filmmakers, you know, it, it, or the next generation. Well, he was sort of a bridge generation. Yeah, you know, he's not quite John Ford, but he's not Francis Coppola, right, you know. Right, yeah. Um, I, but I that that high contrast of beautiful music, violent scene. Yeah, <laughs> you know right. that that real dark and light, yeah. you know, high contrast stuff really appealed to me um, as a kid, and it has influenced me in my work as a music supervisor. I'm sure. Yeah, I I trust me. I, I when I get a director in a film that can handle that kind of a, an approach. Uh, it's I love it. It's like, yeah, what can we do? You know, yeah. did a film twenty some years ago uh, at New Line when I was there, um, and uh, American History X. Oh yeah, I love that movie with Ed Norton, Ed Norton. and Eddie Furlong and wow. uh, Stacy Keach. Really important, oh, important Keech. film. Very powerful film. Um, I have to say, still one of the films I'm most proud of that I've worked on. Yeah. And Tony Kay was the director, and he's a was a very well known, still is, uh, British commercial director. You know, he I don't know if you remember, in the late '90s there was a Volvo ad where they actually drove a Volvo off a cliff. Oh, that sounds familiar. I don't remember what the point was, but I just remember the image of the Volvo going, you know. And that was Tony. Oh wow! And um, I was in a meeting with Tony. I had just met him hmm. and a group of people, and somebody was suggesting the obvious to, you know, like, let's get, you know, skinheads, skater bands, let's score it with, you know, punk bands and neo-Nazi bands. And, oh, yeah. and I'm going, yeah, corporately, that's not going to work. But um, Tony was, no, 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 no. And I was sitting next to him and I leaned over quietly and I just said, you love Kubrick, don't you? And he just looked at me like, how did you see into my soul? <laughs> yeah. And um, we hired Ann Dudley, who did a beautiful elegiac score for, you know, the murder scene at the end of the movie. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was really powerful. And I, I had a blast working with Tony because we immediately had, a, you know, we had a common dialogue. Yeah. A common point of reference. Right. He loved Kubrick. Oh, that's awesome. Well, he also loved the Beatles, too. So, oh. you know, we were, I was in good company. Yeah, man. 
Well, geez, thanks for all that. I love hearing about that. Just the creative process of pairing the right score that sets the picture off, whether, like you said, it's underneath or whether it's becoming a character itself. It's so fascinating to me. So I'm sure it will be to many listening as well. Well, you talk about the Beatles and you were talking about, um, I, I read a lot about you starting out in bands and I wanted to explore that too. The Beatles, who else? Who were your big, big British invasion? The Kinks too? Oh, I love the day. Ray Davies is an underrated, uh, fantastic songwriter. Yeah. One of my faves. Um, you know, he was the first one that really embraced writing about British society yeah. and characters. Right. Well-respected man. And then the Beatles came along with, you know, they, they shifted by the time we got to rubber soul, they started writing about people yeah. and not just, she loves you. I love you. Right. want to hold your hand, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It just then started getting into writing about characters. Yeah. And so did the stones. The stones wrote some songs about with characters and people in it. Totally. And I, I, uh, you know, and Pete Townsend too. Yep. I don't know who came first, but certainly Pete Townsend and, and Ray Davies explored what it was to be, you know, British yeah. and characters. Right. And exported that to the world in, in a really successful way. So, yeah, no, I love The Who, The Kinks, Stones, Beatles. Um, so, you know, and then by the late 60s, you know, Cream, Hendrix. Uh, I, I was there for, you know, as a kid, inhaling all of that wonderful yeah, man. time. Yeah. Um, in the 70s, uh, I actually... Um, will admit that I was into a fair amount of prog rock. Right on. So was my brother. Um, he got me into Yes Deep. I was super Yeah, I, yes. yeah, I saw Yes a couple times, <laughs> blown away. Nice. And Genesis. Okay, yeah, he was oh, into Genesis. That's how I discovered Peter Gabriel. I saw Genesis a couple times. He remembers well, seeing him with the flower, the flower costume, yes. yeah. Yep, no. Uh, and I saw him do Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Mm. Um probably 1975 wow. something. then he left the band. Yeah. But I, I've, I've been a huge uh, Peter Gabriel fan yeah. um, ever since. And his solo stuff is great. Yeah. But I have to say that if I'm going to completely out myself, <laughs> my overarching most influential uh, artist is David Bowie. Oh man. I got probably 40 David Bowie records back there for sure. But, but Bowie, um, I know old enough that I I got to see The Spiders from Mars in 1972. Oh, wow. Amazing. And blew my mind. Um, Where'd you see it? Where, I don't know where you grew up. Did you grow up out here? I grew up, I grew up in Chicago. Oh, okay. Nice. I saw them at the Auditorium Theater in, in Chicago. Wow. And uh, it was it was outstanding. <laughs> was really outstanding and i wow. saw a lot of tours not every tour but i i saw pretty much everything including the horrible uh, glass spider tour in movie <laughs> sticks yeah and even even bowie admits that was a <laughs> bit of a disaster oh man um know. yeah bowie's just a, I mean, you know he's like peel back the layers of the onion jesus there was an exhibition that started in london in 2013 uh-huh. and then i think it went to Toronto, Chicago, New York. Bowie was still alive. He yeah. wasn't involved in the exhibition, but he made you know his stuff available. Mm-hmm. And even though I was a huge fan, I was amazed to see it all laid out. The influence he had on you know rock and roll and gender issues, yes, and theatrical presentation, right. Um, having, you know, had some training as a mime. Right. Um, and uh, fashion and um, film, cinema, uh, music, and, you know, like pulling in seemingly non-commercial sort of sounds and making them commercial. Right, you know. right. Uh, he he was definitely a chameleon, and I've gone back and, and discovered his, his pre- uh, Ziggy Stardust era when he was a young artist signed and kind of this Anthony Newley kind of <laughs> sperm era. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yep. Um, he's incredible, incredible chameleon of a vocalist. Yeah, he sure was. And you know, 
I mean, you think about the nasally Ziggy Stardust, you know, uh, Starman versus heroes. Yeah, I know. So, yeah. so wide ranging. I love what, uh, I just love what you said about all the things that he really was a, a forebearer of with, you know, fashion, uh, sexuality, gender roles. Like he was just on top, you know, bringing art into music more. I mean, people were back then, but he really embraced that, you know, I guess the Pink Floyd yeah. too, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, he, uh, you know, well, there were other, yeah, there, there was a, I think it, he, you know, a lot he of the Brits the came thing. from art school, so it made sense. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, if, if if you you know, for those of us who, um, because I worked over there, and my sister lived in in England for uh, six years, five or six years, yeah. And I know a bit about how it works. And I was growing up, I was a little bit annoyed by the fact that all these young Brits were, you know, in these bands. I mean, Paul Rogers when he sang was in Free and sang All Right Now was eighteen years old. So Steve Winwood when he sang, you know, Spencer I'm Davis. a man and yeah. uh the Spencer Davis group was like sixteen, you yeah. know. I mean singing his behind off too. Yeah, it starts <laughs> starts traffic and then blind faith he's only twenty one. I mean crazy. But you test out in secondary school, what we would call high school, yeah. and you at age like fifteen, and you either go on to uni, yeah. or you go into the trades, or a lot of the rockers went to art school. Right, right, amazing. So you know, there. So did you yeah. get all this from? I, I don't know where you are. You mentioned you have a brother, yeah. I I, I have. He's not with us anymore, but I have an older brother who was caught the end tail end of the fifties, and so I got you know that Elvis and the Everly brothers and nice. all that stuff from him. Love all that too. Well, so how did you pick up your love of the British invasion stuff? Was it through junior high and high school? Were friends listening to it or did you find it on your own? How did you get into it? My sister. Oh, okay. my, I'm here. the youngest. I'm the youngest of four. My sister, Monica, who's four years older, yeah. came home with meet the Beatles. Oh, nice. And, and that was the gateway drug right there. You oh, know. man. Right. I saw, yeah. I got to ask you too, I saw this, I found this picture on some interview you did playing in an early band and you've got what looks like one of those Hofner violin guitars, the 459, I think they called it. Did you, yeah, do you remember that guitar? Oh yeah, no, I, it was, it, it wasn't a Hofner was and it? it was, a, it was in terms of a playable instrument. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I just like the look of it. <laughs> yeah, they're I, amazing. It, it was, but it was, it was basically a piece of, you know, yeah. shit. Um, <laughs> and the action on the 12th fret was probably like that. Oh yeah. You know, but, I, but I was playing. Good for Brian Jones slide parts. I, yeah, I was, <laughs> but I was, I was a rhythm guitar player in that band and I, I was playing first position mostly. Gotcha. So you can get away with, you know, above the fifth fret then it starts to get a little iffy <laughs> a little pitchy but if there. you keep all your chord shapes in the first five frets you can get away with the guitar that has an action like that at the 12th fret oh my gosh wow well yeah now makes sense i knew you i read that you went to college in chicago but i knew you grew up there so you were talking about going to school there and uh I read that you uh, saw that Bill Putnam uh, was doing a workshop and that really changed kind of your perspective and your trajectory and uh, made you kind of shift your focus from being a musician, maybe to uh, being a record producer instead and getting into yeah, that the was, full picture. In, in college, um, I graduated from Columbia College, Chicago, that uh, the Center for New Music, right. which was run, started and run by a, a jazz composer orchestrator named bill russo william russo okay. he wrote two books that are still considered sort of the books on jazz composition and orchestration uh -huh. university of chicago press okay and bill's one of my definitely one of my mentors oh. um and that and and i'm not a jazzer but i'm really glad that i you know that i studied with him because i got an insight into more complex harmonies right uh, chord Chords that I never go near, flat <laughs> right. nines, thirteens. You know, like wh what? <laughs> um, I interviewed Terry Reed, and he calls diminished chords demented chords. Right. <laughs> and the Beatles called them uh, naughty chords. <laughs> right. Sorry. Continue. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
that was a really good time. But I think, the, you know, starting bands and I was more active in college, high school. My high school band played more than any other band that I played in. Oh, yeah. And then my, I was in a college band for a couple of years and they played, but not as much as my high school band. Yeah. And then I formed a couple, tried to form a few other bands, but it was, I don't know. I, I was just, it's too much work. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of work. That's for sure. Um, too much work and i was more interested in the studio yeah i you know the studio as an instrument right and um you know by this point mccartney's made his first solo record all by himself on a multi-track mm. todd rundgren was making you know records by himself yeah. on a multi-track right um that really intrigued me and i wanted to do that yeah um i so i i bought my first four track tiac four track 3340 for those who are old enough to remember that gem of a machine <laughs> uh, created the porta studio uh-huh. open reel yeah. um it's uh it was you know it allowed me to start to record and record myself and my friends and try things out and um and start to learn how to you know self learn how to engineer mm. i moved to san francisco after i graduated and went to work in a one room studio run by owned by a couple literally a couple of hippies <laughs> nice. and uh i was sort of a paid internship yeah. and i helped them book the studio and keep track of the schedules and then would hang out with the engineers in the control room and learn about signal path and microphones and yeah. uh, distortion and when it's your friend when it's not your friend <laughs> right and and all those kinds of things and and uh did some of my first recordings driving by myself for the two inch 16 track. And um, I found some of those tapes recently and they actually weren't, aren't, aren't bad. Um, So that I wanted to be it. So I decided I wanted to be, you know, like George Martin, I wanted to be a producer and which is akin to sort of being a, a film director, you know, and, it's not the same as a producer in, in films. Producer in, in music, as, as probably everybody that's watching this knows, is is kind of a director role. Right. Helping to decide what material to cut, how to cut it, where to cut it, when to cut it, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Creatively and and running the, you know, the the, the budget aspect of it and all that stuff. Um, so that's that was sort of my career path. But I felt the way that and how I wanted to be, I wanted to be the kind of producer who understood the tools, understood how it's done. You know, like um, I wanted to see how I wanted to know how the sausage is made. Yeah. And so I wanted to train and be an engineer. Right. Because uh, I didn't want to be in the studio as a producer in my own, in my mind at that time and be, you know, ask for something because I was loved all this experimental stuff. And, you know, how do you do that? Let's do that. And, yeah. and have an engineer say, we can't do that. <laughs> right. Can't do that. Yeah. So I need to know, know enough so I can say, yeah, we can. Yeah. Let's try that. You know? Right. So I trained as an engineer. Um, I worked for the hippies for a short period of time. Was still playing a little bit. Um, this is retina circus. Yes, yes, Retina Circus. I did my research, Paul. Oh, you did. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, and uh, I needed a full, I needed a regular job. I needed a regular pay- paycheck. Yeah. And I heard that um, Francis Coppola's company, American Zoetrope in San Francisco, was hiring people who had to know how to run, not a film chain, because I'd never run a film chain, mm. but they had locked up two 24 track, two inch open real analog machines yeah. to their film chain. Wow. And that film people, that was new for them. This was a new thing. This is pre simpty This is pre, right. you know, it, it was a, there was a system called a mini mag. I, I it, you know, it was basically a chewing gum and some wires. I think that's <laughs> locked the shit up. So I had experience with an open real, you know, analog tape machine. Yeah. So I got a job working in, the machine room and the machine room is where you put all the elements up, whether you're, you know, it's, if you're doing dialogue, you put all the dialogue elements up and this, you know, and then you give control to the mixers and they work on it for 45 minutes or four and a half hours. And then you change stuff. So you're the engine room. Yeah. You're the engine. Got it. 
and they hired me. It happened to be on a little film called Apocalypse Now. Right. And so I spent um, pretty much 10 months of the year, 1979, working on Apocalypse Now. Right. And I consider that my graduate school, my film graduate school, because I learned about film sound, not just music. Yeah. And I got really interested in sound design because I worked for a guy, the main mixer was a guy called uh, Walter Murch, mm -hmm. yeah. who's a legendary sound designer and picture editor. Yeah. Um, he's done, you know, conversation worked on a godfather she's the first person that got a sound designer credit in the main title on a mo major motion picture mm. the conversation in like 73 74 conversation, yeah. movie with gene hackman which is really still stands up i, I watched it recently oh, yeah. so i got to be on the, you know i had a job to do you know in the engine room but once we set up and they're working i would go in as much as i could and sit in the back of the room and just watch and listen to what they were doing and that uh, you know and Walter's very professorial and few a man of few words, but every so often he'd take a break and he'd push his chair back and he'd, do you have any questions? Nice. And, you know, then we'd have, a, you know, we'd have a, a, a teacher student moment right. and I'd learn. And uh, so off of, off of that, I wanted to get back on the record. So I thought that's, that was great. I, I now know about that. Yeah. I'm going to LA coming off this big movie, yeah. I, I'm going to get a job at the best studio I can. Yeah. And um, being a record collector like yourself, I was a, you know, I was a, a train spotter of, you know, like <laughs> I could tell you who played bass on track three of, you know, Thunder <laughs> right. Ron's second album, right. you know. <laughs> um, and it was helpful when you had 12 by 12 inch, you know, records and credits to read, you know, <sighs> as opposed to I need a magnifying glass for, I put my glasses or on now, <laughs> or, or or now you just don't have credits, yeah. um, which is sad. Yeah. So I, I got a job at Record Plan, and they said, you're overqualified. You know, I said, okay, so. And, well, it was kind of like a fraternity hazing system where you, um, you kind of had to come in as a pledge mm. or you weren't respected, you weren't accepted because everybody else had. Yeah. So Chris Stone, uh, co-founder, owner of the Record Plan. Right said, look, you'd have to start as a janitor or a runner. Mm -hmm. uh, I, he said, I hired one assistant from Australia off the street and he was never accepted. He never, you know, the rest of the, the team never accepted him and he, therefore he didn't, wasn't successful. Mm. And I said, I'm fine. What do you want me to be? He said, well, we got an opening for a janitor. I said, good. When do I start? Yeah. And I be, you know, became a janitor. Um, and confident that I would quickly move through that. And within six months, I was put on a, we had three remote uh, recording trucks, yeah. 24 track recording trucks on wheels. Right. And I was down at the LA forum on the crew recording the Eagles on the long run. Their, I read their last that. That's amazing. Fourth. You know, I mean, I was just, I was, I was a second assistant assistant. Right. But they, so what job did I get? I had to go up on the catwalk. Oh. I still want to go before my point. I go, see that catwalk up there? <laughs> I was up there and I had to hang a stereo pair of 87s. Yeah. Loop them down. Oh, my God. Get them the right height in the right place. Oh, my God. It took a few tries. And, man, I had to tape them up like so that. That, you know, with gaffer's tape so that, because you didn't want them falling out no. of the XL connector no. and hitting somebody on the head. <laughs> oh my God. You know, and, and I'm, I'm not afraid of heights, but it was definitely like, <laughs> it was definitely like, I'm, wow, I'm way up here. I'm in a catwalk and I'm putting these microphones, but I want this job and I'm doing it. Right. Yeah, so. man, you did it. My friend Danny Holloway used to work for Chris Blackwell, and he did the same thing for the Whalers out in London when they did their tours of London. Was hanging mics from the ceiling to get that ambient crowd sound and the response. Makes such a yeah. difference, though. The crowd mics are like everything. I you was can very, hear the experience. After that, I was very proud of my ability to, to hang crowd mics. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't all, you know, off catwalks. But, I mean, I, I really learned the value of... of of crowd mics. Yeah. One of the best live rock albums in the 70s is uh, Humble Pie at the Fillmore. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mixed by Eddie Kramer, recorded and mixed by Eddie Kramer. Oh, it is, huh? Yeah. And he put, whether there's, I think he 
added delay, but you really feel like you're in the Fillmore. Right. You really feel like you're in the crowd. Right. He he favored the crowd more than most, but it you're still getting a, a, a loud rock band totally, off the stage. Totally, yeah. But you're not getting it all direct. You're getting it. You're you're. It's. I highly recommend uh, if, if somebody wants to listen to what I think is a really great sounding rock live album. It's it's Rock in the Fillmore. Oh yeah, man. Humble Pie Fillmore. Okay, yeah, man. Humble Pie. Can't mess with Humble Pie. You know, <laughs> little yeah. fear waiting for Columbus. I'm going to put that up there though, too. Boy, that's a good live record as well. That is a good live record. Oh, uh, but there's something about the audience mics, then. Yeah. You know, and I did did appreciate that. So yeah, so that's what I did. I I, I did remotes. I did a, a combination of things. And one of the things that um, I'm really thankful to Chris and Gloria Stone, the owners of Record Plant is I was the first of my generation to get married yeah. and then have kids. And so um, they, they made sure I worked. Yeah. They made sure I was out because you would, otherwise you would go from, you'd be put on an album project or a film project. And then when it ended, you know, like, okay, what am I doing next? And right. you might go two or three weeks without a project or, and so they started, so Chris brought me in and started teaching me about the business and I was really fascinated with microphones and he gave me $50,000 and said, go out and buy all the best two microphones you can. Yeah. Want to start a rental company called Livingstone Audio. Oh. So uh, I, you know, I love gear. I still do. I spent two days at the NAMM show. I still oh, go nice. to the NAMM. Yeah. You know, um, I love microphones. You know, I just love them. Same. So they taught me the business. They gave me the confidence so by a few years down the road, I went up, moved back to the Bay Area and became the general manager of uh, Saucedo Record Plant. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, a drug dealer bought the studio about a year or so after I got there. And hmm. um, I didn't wait to get fired. I just left. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And um, I stayed in the Bay Area and then came back. Uh, and was had come across the record plant was such a great experience because so many different people worked there. We had one of our oldest trucks parked next to Stevie Wonder's um, studio that he'd bought in Koreatown. He still owns it, oh, wow. but it did, he never took the time to build put a console in and properly. So that we, he had he had a control room, but it had no console, no, you know, oh. so we were his control room uh, parked out. Now <laughs> I didn't work with him. He had a regular crew of two assistants and a tech engineer and they were on call like seven days a week, you know, yeah. with, uh, with a beeper and they get beeped at five o'clock. Steve wants to come in and they go down, they open up the turn on the truck. Uh, they order some food. They wait around, they wait around, they wait around 10.30, Steve's coming down. Okay, 11.30. I'm not sure Steve's coming. <laughs> They're packing up and then Steve shows up and then they work till four or five. So those guys were anxious to be able to take some time off because it was a burnout gig. Oh, uh, yeah. And I was happy to, for I could do that for a couple weeks at a time. Yeah. So um, I got to work at Steve with Stevie and at his studio yeah, off and on you know, over the course of a year or so. And that was fantastic. And during that time, I met a guy um, and I was introduced to the Fairlight. Oh, yeah. Right. And I took a, because we were waiting around for Steve, every manufacturer gave him at least one of their, you know, keyboards. <laughs> sure, you know, yeah. there was another room with just gear. Yeah. Some of it was in the box and wasn't even opened or hadn't been taken out. <laughs> yeah. So I'd take the stuff out instead of, you know, just reading magazines or shooting the shit. Yeah. I, I would take gear out and plug it in and get the manual out or just, what does this do? And right. the Fairlight was one of them. Oh, how cool. This is the first and cut two. I made a connection. I showed interest and that, you know, Six, seven years later, I was asked to run Fairlight in the U.S. Wow. So I did that after the Saucedo record plant Amazing. for a couple of years until they went bankrupt. But that was – and Peter Gabriel was one of our biggest clients. Okay. Um, 
Hans Zimmer. That's where I know Hans from. Oh, yeah. uh, Thomas Dolby, Herbie Hancock, Steve Winwood, uh, Trevor Horn. Sound of Trevor Horn Records is so Fairlight in right. the 80s. Right. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yeah. Peter Gabriel's records uh, in the 80s, so Fairlight. Super. I mean, you know. So it was a great time. Had two years there. Oh, my gosh. Came off of that. And, okay, so I'm looking for another project. What am I going to do? Yeah. And friends of mine that I'd met earlier who had been film students at USC got a TV series on CBS called TV 101. It was oh. Matt LeBlanc's first series, okay. Jerry Polo's first series. And um, they said, hey, do you want to come on and, uh, you know, work with us on this, you know, as a music supervisor? And I kind of had a vague sense of what a music supervisor was. I always thought it was a weird name. It sounded to me like some somebody with a clipboard and, you know, <laughs> we make enough widgets today, you know. <laughs> right. But, hey, uh, so it was set in high school, so it, was, it had a lot of cool music. And in fact, for our composers on the series, uh, we had Stuart Copeland did the pilot and a couple uh, of episodes. Yeah. Odd Rundgren did a couple of episodes. Jeff Scott Baxter did some episodes. Scott. So... So, you know, I was, I was in my element, you know, I was back with, you know, the rockers yeah. doing, you know, TV music. Awesome. The show got canceled, but the company that made it, which was Grant Tinker's company after he left uh, NBC in the late, mid, late eighties. Yeah. Called me and my now, uh, and then business partner, creative partner, a guy named Evian Klein, hmm. who runs all the music for HBO now. Okay. Uh, Evian and I had worked on. Uh, TV 101 and they they said hey boys come on up we want to talk to you about another series and we got up there and said yeah it's you know set in Southern California it's lifestyle it's at the beach it's gonna be a lot of music and we like what you've done on TV 101 we'd like you to get involved and help the the, the, the producers on it it was Baywatch <laughs> right I read that you so were we Baywatch. just we just backed into the you know the Baywatch phenomenon wow and it even got canceled after the first season. It was on NBC. Okay. But um, those guys were, you know, wouldn't give up. And they put together a international independent, you know, network of, of and around the world and created a phenomenon of, you know, sure independent did. networking, you know, and it became as well known around the world as it was in the U.S. Right, right. And we licensed a lot of music. Oh yeah. Because um, there's not only because it was a lifestyle thing, yeah, but we would devise montages, you know, kind of like music videos right? where your character had this thoughtful moment walking on the beach and we'd find a song that would fit that mood right. and then they would shoot to it. Yeah. We'd, cl we'd clear it and then they would shoot to it. Yeah. Well, it not only was it a creative choice, but it was a f economic choice because they would sh they could shoot these videos without you know without sound mm. uh, with a second unit crew with a skeleton crew. Ah, uh, yeah. So it saved them a lot of money, so they could create in in a two you know two video episode. There might be two, four, five minutes worth of forty-three minutes of airtime that was done second unit quickly right. and effectively and, and, and economically. Win win. So it was a, it was a plus creatively and creative style, yeah. but it also was a strategy for, you know, making the show, uh, you know, for a price. Right. Oh, amazing, man. Amazing. So I did that. Uh, did did that, and we started doing feature films at the time. You know. The, the film industry looked down on TV. It was like, oh yeah, you're the you know poor, the poor relative. Right. That's not the case anymore. No. People from from features world can't wait to get into long form TV. <laughs> totally. You know, and vice versa. Amazing. TV but in the nineties, it was that was it was quite segregated. So we just picked up independent films yeah. for little or no money, <clears throat> but credit, so we could build our credits and feature. Sure. And we started to do uh, a lot of films for a company called Propaganda. Mm -hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, and then we started doing Disney films, Mighty Ducks 2, mm. uh, some other films for Disney, Camp Nowhere. Then we did film for Fox, Bye Bye Love, et cetera. So we were starting to build our brand so that we could do television because yeah. we had our bread and butter in television, yeah. but we could do features. And it was during that time 
that Toby Emmerich, who was running the music department at New Line, rang him up and said, you know, I keep asking around, your name comes up, you know, why don't you come in and talk to me? You know, let's have a meeting. So I did, and um, it felt really good, and it was the right time in my life um, to to have the stability of working in a company. And I was intrigued. I really wanted to understand. I've been on the outside dealing with the decision-making of a studio or a network, but I wanted to get inside and like, well, how are these decisions made? What's the... What's the dynamic of, you know, of being the studio, of being the spider, of being the buyer, as opposed to, you know, being on the outside Um, with the thought that maybe I would, you know, my career would go into producing films that were music oriented. Mm. Um, I've worked on enough that, you know, uh, I've had some of that, but that wasn't necessarily my career path. But I did get in the studio system. I worked at New Line for 12 years and now I've been at Warner Brothers since and it's uh, 2009. Wow, yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm waiting to wake up and and go, you know, I'm done with this. Yeah. You know, I'm tired. You know, it's lost its appeal. <laughs> hasn't it's happened just, yet. It just has not happened yet. Awesome. In fact, I get, I get more geeky and more excited about it. I can feel your enthusiasm, man. That's what I just love that I'm going to get to share with our listeners is your enthusiasm, your attention to detail, your clearly, your work ethic is is on point. You're always interested and interesting. And I just hope that's what people take away. Like so many amazing things can happen if you're just putting yourself in positions with other people who are interested in what you're interested in. Yeah, I'm, I would characterize myself as I'm, I'm eternally curious. Yeah. I, 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 you know, whether I actually do it, but I I try to, (laughs) with the concept of, I'd like to learn one new thing every day. Right. You know, yeah. Do one new thing, learn one new thing every day. That's what we're here for. Keep learning, keep getting better. Yeah. So it, it, it feeds my, it feeds my uh, soul. Um, It's interesting in my, as an alum of Columbia College Chicago, yes. In, in recent years, I've gotten involved to the point I'm not on the board of trustees, and I'm working with the president on a speaker series because we've got a lot of people in the film and media industries um, as alums. Because I got a, a good film school, very good film school as well, yeah. and uh, we're developing a series called the Crooked Path. Okay, because and as as I do a lot of talking to, speaking to classes, undergrad and graduate level around the country. You know, Zoom has been wonderful for that, especially during the pandemic, but I've been doing it before that. Um, I realized that there's an, and I had it, there's an expectation that there's there's one way to go. I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to be a director. I want to be a producer. I want to make records. I want to be an artist. I want to, you know, that most of us, if we look at it, our path is not this. It's we're going this way, but a door opens over here. Like the apocalypse now for me. Right. And and I had enough interest in it and was prepared to recognize the opportunity. To me, that's luck. It's preparing yourself for the things that you're interested in so you can recognize when an opportunity comes along and then you can act on it. Right. That to me, that's that's been my experience of what luck is. Yeah. As opposed to, poof, it drops out of the sky. I go, wow, what? Ha- Whoa, isn't that great? You know? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And uh, so I kind of feel that we make our own luck, and that you know you got to be keep yourself open and aware because opportunities come up, and you have to a be ready for them and recognize them. Right. And then act on them. You know. So, um, the, and the funny thing was. At, at, just to go back to the record plan experience. So here I thought, okay, I did that. That was great. I worked on Apocalypse Now. I, you know, I got that in my bag. Um, I'm going back to records. Yeah. Little did I know that by that point, this was post-Saturday Night Fever, that Hollywood realized that my generation, the baby boomers, loved our music and our films, in films. Mm. So at record plan pivoted to doing a lot of films. We worked on uh Blues Brothers, uh, Spinal Tap, Gentles, Jazz Singer, Best Little Whorehouse. Then we started a scoring stage. We took over the, the old Paramount Studio oh, yeah. uh, D and put an SSL console in. And, you know, and I had as much or more film experience as anybody at Record Plan. So I kept being put on film things, yeah. film dates. 
And then if you if you're any good and and you do it enough, you get better at it, and then you get asked to be on it. So pretty soon my career was weighted more towards film, and I was dying. You know, let me do a record date. You know, like <laughs> yeah. but you're the film guy. Right. You know? <laughs> it was uh, it was meant to be. <laughs> it was it was meant to be, and it was really um, yeah. Zoetrope is a special place. I'm still close friends with. We were we definitely bonded on that film. I'm still close oh, friends with a lot of the people I work with. That's cool. It's amazing how some people see things in us more than we see them in ourselves too. Like they clearly saw that you were the guy. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I, yeah, it's lowercase. <laughs> the guy, you know, in lowercase. Or you could cross out the, I was a guy uh, in the right place at the right time. Right, right, right. And then I had to prove myself. <laughs> Well, Paul, I so appreciate you taking the time, and uh, uh, I just thank you for feeding our souls today and sharing your story and so many uh, amazing tidbits about your life in music and how you did it. And I just think so many people are going to get um, so many great tips and insights from you. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on and taking the time with us today. Well. And thank, thank you very much for inviting me and for having this conversation. You made it easy, so oh, thanks. Thank you, Paul. All right, brother. Well, I, hopefully I'll, we'll meet in person sometime soon and uh, be well. Sounds good. All right, Paul. Take care. Bye. Bye. Take care. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conduit. The Conduit is brought to you by Crew S Studio and danubeproductions.com. Many thanks to the folks at Squadcast, Polymash, Captivate, We Edit Podcasts, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Sure, and Avid. Extra special thanks to my brothers from other mothers, Scott Power, Bill Coulter, and Alex Dezen. And last but not least, go check out Soul Pitman, my hand-picked music playlists on notrealart.com. Until next time, this is Dan Ubik, signing off.